0: Well, if you have a Bible, you can take it out and open to the book of 1 Timothy. Our passage is going to be uh, in chapter 4, but we're going to jump around a little bit in this book. If you're current with us on our reading plan for 2022, our window this week for, for reading would have been 1 Timothy 1 through 1 Timothy chapter 5. So our passage is chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. It's a short passage. But before we get into that, I want to do a little background about who some of these people are. So the first question we want to ask is, who is Timothy? Timothy was a son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And he joined Paul and Silas on Paul's second missionary journey. You can read about this in Acts chapter 16. It's verses 1 through 5. Paul and Silas head out on a missionary journey. Paul wants to go check on all of the churches that they had planted on his first journey. He wants to encourage them and see how they're doing. So he takes Silas with him. And they end up in a, um, they come to Derby and Lystra, and they meet a disciple named Timothy. And immediately Paul wanted Timothy to join them. So Timothy joins them, but there's an interesting thing. Paul knows that the Jews in that area know that Timothy's father is a Greek. So he takes Timothy and he circumcises him for the sake of their mission, has nothing to do with Timothy's salvation. He did it so that it wouldn't offend the Jews when they went in to speak in the synagogues or when they went to Jews' homes. Timothy would have most likely have been a late teens, early 20s at this point when he joined Paul, so he was a young guy. And you can read about Timothy throughout Paul's epistles. One of the things that Paul did was Paul sent Timothy to several of the churches while they were on their journeys. In your notes I put, he's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Philippians 2, and 1 Thessalonians 6. Paul would send Timothy to these churches to check on him, to make sure that his teachings were still happening. And then Timothy would bring back a report to Paul to let him know how those churches were doing. Paul also mentions Timothy in a lot of his epistles. To several of the churches, Paul says, Timothy is with me. Now put this in your notes. He does it in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, First and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Some of those letters Paul wrote while he was in prison in Rome. So Timothy was with him while he was in prison. And after Paul was released from prison in Rome, his first imprisonment, he and Timothy headed back to Ephesus and they visited church in, churches in that area to check on them. Paul decided to go back to Macedonia and he leaves Timothy in Ephesus to lead the church there. And we see that in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. So that's a little bit of the background about Timothy and Paul's relationship. Paul loved Timothy. He was like a son to him. You can see that when you read these letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. He loved him. Now let's talk about this book in particular. (laughs) 1 Timothy is the first of three pastoral letters in the New Testament, the others being 2 Timothy and Titus. Paul wrote this letter to instruct Timothy how people should behave in the church. So in your Bible, I want you to, to look at something with me. Look at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is what Paul says. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's Paul's central focus in this letter, is proper conduct in the church. And notice he says that the church is the pillar of truth. So it's important that people behave properly in the church. So this is a letter written to a pastor about how to pastor his church. So there's a danger in me telling you that. Now, I know nobody in here would do this because y'all are the Wednesday night dedicated people and the people that hung around even when you found out the pastor, the college pastor was going to be preaching. But there might be some people who when they hear that this letter was written to a pastor about how to pastor, they'll check out. I say, I'm not a pastor. I, I don't need to hear this. We're all guilty of, these, of this in phases of our life. I'll admit, I do this at work sometimes when I get in meetings and they get past my part of the project and I hear them move on to the other, I go, oh, I, I don't have to pay attention anymore. But, this is an important letter for us to study. A few years back, when Allison and I were still youth leaders, we went through the book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy with with the youth on Sunday nights in small groups, and one of the questions we would ask them is, why is it important for you to know about this book? So that's what I want you to think about tonight, too, is why is it important for you to know What Paul's teaching in here one of the things one of the reasons why it's important is when you look around a room with this many people in it we live in Odessa and people leave Odessa chances are that somebody in this room is going to leave Odessa it may be in a year it may be in two years it may be in five years You may go for a new job. You may retire and go somewhere where there's water and trees. But when you go, you will have to find a new church. And you will need to know, is that pastor living his life the way Timothy, the book of Timothy tells us? That's one reason. Second reason... Might be, it might be in this church or it might be in another church. You might be asked to be on a search committee to find a new pastor. And if you are asked to do that, you need to know what the qualifications are for a pastor. How they should live their life, how they should act. Another reason that this is important is... You, as church members, need to hold leadership in this church accountable. You can look at our elders and our deacons and say, Are they living out their lives the way 1 Timothy describes that they should? And the last reason I'll give you is this there are lots of things in this book that apply to all believers, all of us. They're not just specific to pastors. that brings us to the big idea of our passage. And the big idea is this. Believers must train for godliness. This is something that all of us must do. If you're a follower of Christ, you must train for godliness. Let's read our passage, chapter 4, starting in verse 6, and it says this, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this evening. I'm so thankful to be here tonight with your people. Lord, I pray as we dive into your word that the truth of your word would be revealed to us, that you would open our eyes to that truth. Lord, I pray that what we read tonight, what we study, would change us from the inside out and would make us more like you. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's start off talking about training. So the Greek word that Paul uses in this passage is... Gim and SIA. I think I'm saying that right. Gim and SIA. And it means physical exercise or training. So if this word looks familiar, it's because we get the English words gymnasium and gymnastics from this. Gymnasium being a place where exercise is done and gymnastics... Athletics. So Paul uses this word. And this is clearly, when he uses this word and he talks about training, this is clearly something you have to do. Meaning, it's active. It's not passive. It doesn't just happen to you. You have to initiate it and actively do it. So I'm a baseball guy. I love baseball. We got anybody in here that's baseball? Like two or three of y'all. When I hear the word training, it makes me think about spring training. So a few years ago, we went on family vacation uh, to Florida, and we were in West Palm Beach. And while we were there, I got to visit the Houston Astros spring training facility. It was in the middle of the season, so nobody was there. They were all actually in Houston. But it was very impressive and cool to get to see this big, massive complex where they train. It's actually not just the Astros that train there, it's the Washington Nationals, so it's a split facility. So in a normal year, guys show up in West Palm Beach the beginning of February, and they train for two months. Season normally starts the last weekend of March, first weekend of April. They spend two months just training, honing in their craft, whether it's pitching or hitting, fielding. But this year, there was a lockout, which is a reverse strike. So instead of the players going on strike, the owners locked the players out and said, You can't come to the facilities. And this work dispute that they had lasted until about two weeks before the season was supposed to start. So instead of having two months to have spring training, it got crammed into two weeks. And then they went into the season. And if you're a baseball fan, when you watch the early part of the season, it was very obvious that guys did not get all of their training in. Guys couldn't hit the ball. Some guys couldn't throw the ball. Some guys couldn't field the ball. They struggled because they didn't get their full training. So maybe you're not a sports guy. Sports isn't your thing. I think I have something else that maybe help with this idea of training. How many of you have one of these at home? So if you have one of these at home, you know that training is active and not passive. So this is actually my daughter's dog, Sarah. Um, She actually took this dog through a training course. She went, I don't know, eight Sundays last fall and went through this training, taught her how to walk on a leash, how to sit, how to stop when she tells her to stop. She did all of this. If you have a dog, you know they don't teach themselves that. They don't teach themselves to sit. They don't teach themselves to roll over. You have to actively teach them how to do that. So in both of these examples I've given you, there's one thing that I also want you to see that's important. For baseball players, when spring training is over and the season starts, the training doesn't stop. It just looks a little bit different. They continue to train through the rest of the season. When you have a dog, when you finish obedience school, you don't stop the training. You continue it or they will forget everything that they learned. This is the same with us. Our training in godliness does not stop. We don't reach a point where we made it. It's continual. So that's training. We've talked about training. Let's talk about godliness. In the book of 1 Timothy, there's 113 verses. Pretty short book. Paul mentions godliness or godly 10 times. So if you do the math, on average, every 11 verses, Paul is bringing up godliness. So this is clearly a theme that Paul has going through this book, godliness. So he tells us we're to train for godliness. So what is godliness? What is it? How do we define it? I think the simplest definition is this Godliness is Christ likeness. Godliness is becoming more like Christ. Paul says, train yourself for godliness, or you can also say it this way, discipline yourself. To be more like Christ. So the question that we want to ask tonight and answer, think about, is how do we do this? How do we train ourselves for godliness? So in this passage, Paul gives two commands. The first one is a negative command. And the second one is a positive command. We've talked about the positive one. Train yourself. The second, the first command that he gave, the negative one, I think you have to do that one first to be able to train yourself for godliness. And the first one is this we must avoid myths and speculations and focus on the gospel. So, Look at, look at your Bible with me at verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And when Paul says have nothing to do with, it's what he means. Reject it. Put it away. Have absolutely nothing to do with it. Now this was an issue in the church in Ephesus. You go back and you read chapter 1, Paul addresses this and tells Timothy, you need to do something about this. You have men that are teaching silly myths. They're going down these paths on these long, endless genealogies and they're focusing on that instead of what they should. So it I don't suggest you do this, but you could if you want. You could go home and Google secrets of the Bible or decoding the Bible or mysteries of the Bible, and you're going to find all kinds of really, really strange stuff. People counting words and just strange stuff. The sad thing is, is that some of those are posted on there by people who claim to be Christian, The point that I want to make, that I think Paul is making here to Timothy, is there was a mystery in the Bible, but that mystery has been revealed. Scripture is clear about this. So, jump back over to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to go back to that passage we read at the beginning about... Why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. And I want you to look at verse 16. Paul's going to make it clear what the mystery is. Chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This was the mystery. The mystery was God's plan of salvation, and it's been revealed to us. There's nothing that we need to find that's hidden. It's plain to us now. This has to be our focus. The gospel. God, the holy God, sent his son to save sinners through his life and work on the cross. And people all over the world hear this message. This message is proclaimed to all the nations and All over the world, people respond to that message with faith and repentance. That's the gospel. That's our focus. We're not looking for hidden things in genealogies or myths or fables. The focus is Jesus and his work on the cross. To put it simply, We need to keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get off on the minor things. The main thing needs to be the main thing. So the second thing I want you to see, how we train ourselves for godliness, is we train ourselves through the spiritual disciplines. These are things that we must discipline ourselves to do. And I'm going to go through four of them with you. This isn't all of them, but I thought these are four good places to start. So the first spiritual discipline is this. Reading and studying Scripture. We have to start from hearing God's word. If you want to hear from God today. All you have to do is read this. He will speak to you. You heard from him tonight. When Landon read. Psalm 1. When we read this passage. God spoke to us tonight. We have to read his word. I don't know if you realize this. But you are bombarded. Daily. Daily. With ideas from the world. Every day, whether it's from radio or TV or social media, the world is telling you things. You and I are told how we should feel about things, we're told what we should fear, we're told what should make us happy. We're told what should make us mad. We're also told what's right and wrong. But we must go to God's Word and let God's Word tell us. The Bible tells us. It tells us who God is. It tells us who we are tells us how we should feel about things. It tells us the things that we should be happy about. It tells us the things that should make us mad. It also tells us what is right and what is wrong. We have to have our minds and our lives shaped by God's Word. That has to be the thing in our life that molds us. We can't listen to what the world tells us. What does God's Word tell us? So we start there. We start with God's word. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All of it every page scripture has to shape our lives and this is where we start we hear from god first second second spiritual discipline is prayer we start by hearing from god and then we go to god so how do we do that how do we pray Paul gives us some instruction in this passage. So I want you to flip back over one page. It's one page in my Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1, Paul says this. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, And thanksgivings be made for all people. So who do we pray for? Paul tells us, we pray for all people. So you pray for your spouse. You pray for your kids. Or your grandkids. Or your parents. Or your grandparents. You pray for your pastor's. You pray for this church. You pray for your leaders, city leaders. You pray for state leaders. We pray for Congress. We pray for the president. Paul says, pray for all of them. That also means you pray for that person at work that's super annoying, the person that gets on your nerves. You pray for that person that cut you off this morning on your way to work. You pray for them. You also pray for all the lost people in your life. All the people that you know that don't know Jesus. We pray for them. So that's who we pray for, how do we pray? Paul gives us a list of that too. We do it in every way. Paul says, starts with supplication. We make requests to God, we ask Him for things. He also says, we intercede on behalf of other people, we go to God on behalf of other people. And he also says, thanksgiving. We show gratitude to God for the people and the blessings that are in our life. We do all of those things for all people. Now, prayer, when we pray, we're not praying to change God's mind on anything. Prayer is meant to change us. Is why it's one of the disciplines. We pray so that God will change us will change our hearts when we pray for other people. So we start by reading God's word. We study God's word. And then we pray. And third, third spiritual discipline is this, to worship. Now, if you do one and two, those two should drive you to number three. Reading God's word and praying should drive you to want to worship, to worship God. It's what we're doing in here tonight. We're worshiping God. So look with me in 1 Timothy. We're going to skip down to, to in chapter 4 to verse 13 and see what Paul tells Timothy. Verse, chapter 4, verse 13 Paul tells Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. We gather together in this room to do that. Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights, we read Scripture together, read aloud, we pray together, and we sing songs to God. We worship the one true living God together. So the last spiritual discipline I want you to see is this. It's fellowship. Right? We're Baptists. We like to do that. We like the college class. We do this a lot. We get together and eat food, hang out. But this is a little bit deeper than just getting together and eating, which is a good thing. But we as a body of believers are connected to each other. We have a fellowship with each other. We share in God's grace together. We are united together in Christ. We are the body of Christ. So that means we grieve together, we rejoice together. We encourage one another. I want you to see what the writer of Hebrews says about this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's what we're called to do. And in doing that, we're training for godliness. When God has us together, when when we worship together, when we fellowship together, God's changing us. He uses this to change our hearts, to make us more like Christ. So we read God's word. We study God's word, we pray, we worship together, and we fellowship together. So well, the next question is why? Why do we do all this? And I'm not talking about the obvious answer. The obvious answer is because scripture commands it. Right? We just talked about all scripture is breathed out by God, and right here Paul commands train for godliness. But he also gives us other reasons in this passage why we should train for godliness. The first one I want you to see is this. Godliness has present day benefits and eternal benefits. Look with me at verse 8. says this, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul says training, your body, has some value to it, and we would agree with that. You train your body, you work out, there's benefits to that. You probably feel better. You might lose some weight. But this body is breaking down. It's going to break down. It won't last forever. Paul says, there's value in every way in training for godliness. Both in this life and in the life to come. So does that mean that life is going to be easy? We all know the answer to that is no. Paul's going to talk about in a little bit how hard this is to do. But it doesn't mean life is going to be easy. I do think that we get a little bit of a glimpse of what Paul's talking about. If you flip back over to chapter 2, and look at chapter 2, verse 2. Paul is finishing what he was talking about with prayer. And he says this. He's still talking about prayer right here at the beginning. Praying, talking about praying for kings and all who are in high positions. That we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, I think that's what Paul's talking about. If we train in godliness, we may lead a peaceful, quiet life. Now, I think we need to think about this like you think of the book of Proverbs. the book, A book of Proverbs tells us that if you live life a certain way then things are going to go well for you. And most of the time, that's right. But it's not a guarantee. Proverbs doesn't guarantee that if you do this, this will happen. It says most of the time. If you do this, this is the way it's going to be. Training for godliness does not guarantee that you're going to lead a quiet, peaceful life. It might but we do it anyway. There's no guarantee that that's what it's going to lead to. But the more important thing is there are benefits here in this present time. But Paul says there's benefits in eternity. I can't tell you what that's going to be. Paul says there's going to be some kind of reward. If you live a godly life, There's benefits in eternity. Paul doesn't tell us what that is, but it's something that we should aim for. It's one of the reasons why we train for godliness. So the second reason why we do this is we toil and strive for godliness because our hope is set on the living God. And when Paul says this, he says, "We toil and strive. To toil means to work extremely hard. To strive means to struggle. So Paul's telling us that this training for godliness is going to be hard work. It's going to be a struggle. It's not going to be easy. But he says we do it because our hope is set on the living God. Now, there's a, a chance that somebody could hear me talk about all these things that we must do, we must do, we must do, and say... Well, it sure sounds a lot like you're saying, I can earn, like I have to do this. Paul is telling us the opposite here. Paul is saying we do this because our hope is set on God. Paul doesn't say we toil and strive because our hope is set on ourselves. We can't do this on our own. We don't do this on our own power. We do it through God. We do it because he's God. He is our savior. Our hope lies in him. Without him, we have nothing. Left to ourselves, we deserve his judgment and his wrath. But we have hope in Christ And we set our hope on him. We don't do this on our own. We do this through him and because of him. Because of who he is and what he's done. We do it because we want to. Because we love God. So that brings us to the last one. And it's this. We share the truths that we learn about God with others. The truths that we learn about God are meant to be passed on. We don't learn them just for ourselves. I want you to look back at chapter 4, verse 6. Paul tells Timothy this, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul's telling Timothy, these things that you've learned, if you want to be a good servant of Christ, you need to share them with the brothers. Share them with the congregation. And we are called to make disciples. That's what every single believer is called to do. We're to teach people how to follow Jesus so that they can teach people how to follow Jesus so they can teach people how to follow Jesus. It just keeps going. Every single believer has a ministry. Every single believer has a ministry. You have somebody that you're pouring into. If you're a parent, it's your children. You need to teach your children the truth about God, about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's done. Maybe you're a grandparent, and it's your grandkids. You need to teach them. Maybe it's a friend. I know that not everyone is going to stand up here behind a pulpit and preach a sermon. Not everyone is going to do that. But you might teach a Sunday school. Or you might teach in a wanna class. Or even if you come up here during the summer and you teach during VBS. We share the truths that we learn about God with God's people and with those people who don't know who he is. The point is, we have to train for godliness. We do this, and the things that we learn, we tell to other people. We open our mouth, and we tell people about God. About who he is and what he's done for us and his marvelous plan for salvation. Talk.